0: Our first reading is taken from Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 9a. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble oneself? Is it, is it to bow down the head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes around oneself? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. The word of the Lord.
1: We will read our psalm, Psalm 112, verses 1 to 9, responsively. Hallelujah. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, and have great delight in his commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. Wealth and riches will be their house. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. It goes well with those who are generous in lending. For they will never be shaken. They will not be afraid of any evil tidings. Their heart is sustained and will not fear. They have given freely to the poor. Their righteousness stands fast forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: In the fourth year of King Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem-melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord, of, the host, of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for those 70 these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed? by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the sojourner or the poor and let none of you divide evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
3: As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. So we pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. There'd be far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered this morning would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. This summer, we've been reflecting on faith out of exile. After two years of being separated from one another, separated from the full life of church community, we're returning to the embodied life as followers of Jesus. And as with any new beginning, it gives us the opportunity to reflect what do we let go of and what do we press into such that we can live into the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. And we're being aided in that reflection by going through three Old Testament books, three minor prophets who spoke God's words to his nation at a time of great transition. For 70 years, they had been exiled from their homeland, exiled from the full life of worship. And now they're rebuilding their nation. They're reestablishing their spiritual foundation. And you might ask, what business do we have applying God's words to them to us? For their situation is vastly different from our own. But as we've been saying throughout this series, God isn't really telling them anything new. He's rather reminding them of what they've forgotten rightly reordering their priorities, that they might live into the fullness of life that God offers them. Now, for the first six chapters of Zechariah, we've been reflecting on visions that he received all at once. But now here in chapter 7, there's a time jump. Uh, we move forward some two years. And the words of the prophets, they've been heated. Uh, The temple is being reconstructed. Their spiritual foundation is being re-established. But for 70 years, without that central religious and spiritual authority, revisions have entered into the faith. Namely, two new fast days. Uh, One in the fifth month to mourn and commemorate the destruction of the temple a second in the seventh month, to mourn and commemorate the assassination of Jewish leader Jedaliah. And just as if we here revised our worship, I would need to go down to the diocese and get permission to do so, they send a delegation to the temple to say, can we keep these fast days? Is this right in our tradition? Now what possible relevance could such an obscure theological question have for us? Well, God's response addresses the human heart, our hearts, inviting deep renovation that is as applicable now as it was then. Because lots of things change, but the human heart usually stays the same. You see, in response to the question around fasting... God, through Zechariah, asks a penetrating question. Verse 6, when you fasted, when you abstained from food and drink, did you do that for me? Or let me ask it another way, God says, verse 7. When you eat and drink, don't you do that for yourselves? For your own nourishment? For your own enjoyment? By implication, then, God is saying... You're fasting, you're, you're abstaining, you're weeping and wailing over your losses, is for your own sake. You're doing this for yourselves. Now, we could hear that as incredibly insensitive, couldn't we? I mean, here is this nation, this people who have faced unbelievable national and personal trauma. They've had war. Death, devastation, exile, their culture stripped away. They have reason to weep and wail. Is God saying to them, well, come on, that's all in the past. You've got to get over it and and move on with your lives. I think this passage, like any passage, has got to be heard in the context of the entirety of Scripture. For the Scriptures invite all of us to emotional honesty, to face our pain, our suffering, our trauma, full in the face, to grieve, to wail, to mourn, to cry out our anguish, for such lament is good and right and healing in itself. Because unless we express it, we're going to bury it, which like an infectious festering wound often spreads out to impact every other aspect of life. But just as there is a season of lament, there needs to be a season of healing, forgiveness, restoration. And it seems here that God is inviting them out of that season of lament to healing. For their lament has become self-serving. Now, how can remaining in sorrow and anguish, be self-serving? Well, let me share a story that I think helps to answer that. About 20 years ago, a young woman joined a small group I was hosting in my home. She was new to the church, and over the course of her time with us, we got to know us. She got, we got to know her, and she got to know us. We heard her story, and her story was one of the most devastating stories of trauma in a home life that I have ever heard. As her small group, we came around her in love and support. We got her out of the home. We got the authorities involved, and she lived with us for a time. Years passed, and our love and support of her continued. And then in love, we invited her to chart a course toward healing, restoration, forgiveness. She balked. And while the relationships remained intact, she slowly drifted away and began to attend another church community. Like us, they heard her story, came around her, loved, listened. Years passed. And then they, too, in love, invited her to chart a course toward healing, forgiveness, restoration. Again, she balked, drifted away to another church community, and the pattern continued. Now, she and I remained close throughout, and I had opportunity one day to name that pattern in her. It seems, I said, that you long for the love and support that you receive when others first hear your story. But when they in love desire your healing, you walk away. Is remaining in your pain giving you more than that you want? Than healing would? Yes, she admitted. That's exactly what I'm doing. In her mind, staying in her pain actually benefited her more than she believed healing and forgiveness would. The pain had become more comfortable than the alternative. And I wonder if a similar thing is happening here with the Israelites. Grieving the loss had become more comfortable than the alternative. And what is the alternative that they're being offered? Well, God in this text invites repentance, a broken and contrite heart. You see, in verse 7 and following, God reminds them of their history, how God was deeply grieved that they were allowing injustice to take root in their land, How for the love of personal gain, they were treading over others for the sake of themselves. They were treading on the poor, the sojourner, the the orphan, the widow. And so God sent prophets into their midst with a word of warning, turn away from this. But the prophets went unheeded. And so God gave them over to what they most desired, and that was to be just like the nations around them, and they were swallowed up by the Babylonians. And now 70 years later, they're back in the land. Exile has ended. Without repentance for that injustice, that past is sure to repeat itself. Had it become more comfortable to grieve their loss, than to repent. For to repent is incredibly difficult, isn't it? I see this often in broken relationships. You go to one person and you ask, well, well what happened? And, and they'll say, well, the other person, they did this, that, or this other thing. I'm suffering because of what they've done to me. And you'll go to the other person, well, what happened? And they'll say, well, the other person, they did this, that, and the other thing. I'm suffering because of what they've done for, to me. But there'll be no hope, no future for that relationship, no future beyond that pain unless each acknowledges their contribution to that brokenness and in repentance charts a course toward a new future. But the pain of repentance is something that we often want to avoid at all costs, right? Zechariah reflects on this, how the people, verse 11, stiffened their shoulders like an ox refusing the yoke for plowing, they refuse to hear the words of God. Not only that, they, they blocked their ears against it. Now that's a pattern in every single human heart, isn't it? How many times have we done something and received that prick of conscience and respond to it with justifying self-talk? oh, it was right that I did that because of this, that, or the other thing, or the ends justify the means. The next time we do it, there's a prick of conscience again, but it doesn't require as much justifying self-talk to cloud it out. And then all of a sudden, we're numb to it. One of the lines in a confession in the evening service tries to draw our attention to this reality. As we say, we confess the sins that do not bother us because we've grown used to them. Lament had become self-serving because it had become a way to avoid repentance. Repentance, yes, is at times painful, but it is the pain of surgical intervention that is cutting out the very thing that is destroying us cutting out the cancerous growth of sin, and it's the only route to a different future, to freedom, to ultimately joy. Their fasting and mourning had become self-serving, become more comfortable to lament than to repent. But there's another way I think their fasting may be self-serving. You see, I think hardwired into the human heart is a belief in a kind of karma, that good people should get good things and bad people should get bad things. It often starts in our upbringing, as our parents reward desired behaviors and punish undesired behaviors, but it continues in school and in the workforce Achievement is rewarded with acclaim and, and promotion don't meet the mark, well, you're passed over. All of life seems to hardwire into the human heart good people should get good stuff and bad people should get bad stuff. It's no wonder then that we often approach God out of that same mindset. Which of us is not engaged in a prayer to God that goes something like this? God, if you could just give me this, that, or this other thing, then I'll do this for you. I'll go to church more often. I'll be a minister or a missionary. I'll do this for you. Which of us has not gotten into a period of suffering and not thought, what wrong have I done to deserve this? Good people get good stuff. Bad people get bad stuff. I remember what I often say is the most transformative prayer that I have ever prayed in my life. I was in the midst of probably the darkest season of my life. All of life seemed to be in tatters around me. And I remember one night praying, crying out to God, and my prayer turned angry. And this is the PG version. I cried out, up yours, God. How dare you let this happen to me? I've been a good person. I say that as the most transformative prayer I ever prayed because it exposed something in me. I would have said to you, of course God doesn't reward the good and punish the bad. Our relationship with God is predicated on grace. But that prayer exposed that at the functional level of my heart, I didn't believe that. I believed that karma-like belief. Good people get good things and bad people get bad things. And I say that that was the most transformative prayer that I've ever prayed because that exposure by the Spirit's enabling allowed the renovation of my heart by God's grace and love. And it seems like that karma-like belief is operative here. They're fasting for their own sake. They're fasting to curry God's favor to bring them blessing. And in the face of that heart, God invites repentance. Turn away from injustice. For the peace and prosperity that you so desire is not a reward for performing religious duty. It is rather a symptom, the natural consequence of obedience, seeking justice for all. See what I mean? God is not really telling them anything new. He's reminding them of what they've forgotten, rightly reordering their priorities, telling them what is central to the heart of God, justice. Love, care, concern for the the downtrodden, the poor, the marginalized, the the orphan, the widow. Self-serving love of gain on the backs of the poor is to have no place amongst his people. Out of exile, he invites them to repent of injustice. Now we live in a season, a time where justice is front and center. Right, We're seeking as a nation, a people, to become more and more aware of systemic injustice. There's this deep care and concern in our midst for the poor and the marginalized. If we turned on the news this week or our social media feed, many in our nation were giving rapt attention to the Pope's visit, eager to see his time in Canada bring not only an acknowledgement of the harm the church caused in and through residential schools, but also yearning for concrete action that would bring about healing and restitution, a new future for indigenous peoples. But while there's this shared yearning and desire for justice, it's often disembodied, isn't it? Social media will will fill up with moral outrage and will often speak of virtue signaling We have our pins, our shirts, our hashtags, our justice-oriented overlays on our Facebook profiles. But do such commitments actually lead to justice, to real change? In his book, Incarnate, Michael Frost tells the story of attending a U2 concert. If you've ever been to a U2 concert, you know that their lead singer, Bono, often uses the opportunity to draw attention to the injustice that flourishes in our world. And between songs, Bono began snapping his fingers rhythmically. He said, Did you know that every second, somewhere in the world, a child dies of preventable causes? He issued a rally cry. Together we can make poverty history. And the entire crowd erupted in cheers. Together we can do this. And the crowd went wild. At the end of the concert, the concert goers began to file out of the stadium and were met with a scene that we're often met with when we come out of a concert or a sports event. Homeless people. Panning, the crowd committed to ending poverty just a few moments before couldn't even make eye contact, ignoring the pleas for help. Justice so often seems to be an idea that we're committed to without attending action. So as we respond to the call to repent of injustice, what will renovate the heart toward justice? There's just history that we so often try and motivate toward justice by guilt and shame, right? You have so much. You're so privileged. A privilege that is built on the backs of others. Or we try and motivate by sentimentality. We show images, pictures of those suffering and in pain, but... Those motivations rarely work because we have natural defense mechanisms built up against them. Or will we try and motivate by saying, we've got to pursue justice because it's going to be better for all of us in the long run, which, while true, also feeds the root causes of injustice, that self-centeredness, that human nature curved in on itself. So, if not guilt, shame, sentimentality, or self preservation, what will renovate the heart toward justice? In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller reflects on the writings of Elaine Scarry. And she wrote a book entitled On Beauty and Being Just. And her thesis was that the experience of beauty makes us less self centered. And more open to justice. There's nothing, I think, more beautiful than the love, grace, and forgiveness of God displayed in Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is what will renovate our hearts toward justice. And we have a pointer to that in our first reading from Isaiah. You see, in Isaiah, there's a link made between fasting and justice. And the only fast day that was commanded in Scripture was the Day of Atonement. You see, all year long, the people of God committed themselves to God's law, a law that was about holiness and justice, all the while knowing that no one could be utterly faithful to the law of God. But God provided provision for that. In the Day of Atonement, God provides grace, forgiveness. On the Day of Atonement, God declares, My relationship with my people is not predicated on their performance. It is predicated on my grace and love. And so Isaiah is stunned that they can remember this fast and at the same time oppress their workers. A true encounter with the beauty of God's love, grace, and forgiveness is meant to renovate the heart toward justice. The theologian Marislav Wolf once made a trip to the U.S. And there he met a pastor by the name of Mark Gornick. And Mark was showing Wolf around the neighborhood where his church served. It was the Sandtown district of Baltimore, one of the roughest and most impoverished neighborhoods in the U.S. The neighborhood reminded Wolf of his homeland the war-torn nation of the former Yugoslavia. But the destroyer of this neighborhood was not war, he said, but racial tension, crime, economic ruin. But motivated by God's grace, love, and forgiveness, motivated by the God who in Jesus takes on human flesh and moves into our neighborhood, Mark moved into the neighborhood began to love and serve that community. They built 200 homes, which they provided. They started a job center that placed 1,000 people in work, adding 100 every year. They built a school, a health center. And as they walked through this neighborhood, Gornick said something almost in passing that shocked Wolf. For he suggested that the doctrine of justification by grace, the reality that we are all sinners saved by the free offer of grace in Jesus, contained untapped resources to bring healing in that neighborhood. And Wolf was shocked by that because many in the Western church were abandoning such a belief, seeing it as useless and unhelpful for healing the social implications of poverty, violence, and hopelessness. And Wolf asked, how could such a belief bring change to these streets? And he reflected on that question in an essay entitled Shopkeeper's Gold. And he wrote this. Imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color. You have no hope that any of this will change, for around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV, and in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you're worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow, but you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered. Your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you're not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count even more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you've achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel, not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine, furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. Wolf was bearing witness to how the beauty and truth of the gospel renovates the human heart toward justice. For seeing the Lord of all lay down all for our sake means that every single person has infinite value and must be treated as such. Beholding his love, cross infinite barriers to reach us in love, inspires us to cross barriers to love and meet the other whomever the other is. Seeing this Jesus take upon his shoulders the sin of the whole world empowers us to stand up against the sins of injustice because we know it has been defeated at the cross. Beholding him rise again, ushering in a new creation, gives us boundless hope that when he returns he will flood the earth with his justice, meaning our work is not in vain. Receiving his spirit means that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within us, making new creation come about in us and through us. And so may we, as we face the injustice of our world, repent and receiving his free offer of grace and forgiveness, may the beauty of the gospel transform our hearts toward justice. For we yearn for this. We pray for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.